0: Welcome back to the Power of Planning podcast. In this September episode, I am so pleased to have with me Marnie Jamieson. She is a syndicated columnist whose weekly home and lifestyle column appears in more than 20 newspapers throughout the United States, reaching more than 5 million readers. She's written a series of downsizing books which have guided tens of thousands of people through the downsizing process. And more recently, she wrote What to Do with Everything You Own to Leave the Legacy You Want, which she calls from the heart estate planning for everyone, whatever your situation. It's a great read that offers lots of nuggets of practical wisdom about the estate planning process. So thank you so much for joining me today, Marnie. Thank you, Vanessa, it's a pleasure to be here. I have to say that a lot of the topics that you cover in your book are those topics that I've covered in the podcast since I started over a year ago. So I really am excited to have you here today and talk about those subjects from your unique perspective. And um, One of the things that struck me about your book was the comment that you made when you met with a lawyer to discuss trust documents for the first time. You felt like you were watching a foreign film (laughs) searching for subtitles. Can you kind of recall that experience for us and what that felt like? Well, I'd rather not, but
1: (laughs) (laughs) so, yes, as I mentioned in my book, I just came to this kind of unwittingly and unprepared. I was married in, in the midlife, a second marriage, and my husband was a widower or my husband-to-be, and also a lawyer, inconveniently, (laughs) because he knew about all the things you needed to do, and he wanted to get our affairs in order because together we have a blended family. We have five grown children, and they are finding partners and making more people, and so there are now grandchildren in the picture, and he wanted to make sure that We had a yours mine and ours um, set up so we can talk more about that but i went to figure out you know what that meant in terms of setting up wills and trusts and an estate and really felt like everyone was speaking italian (laughs) and i was not (laughs) informed so um anyway it was a learning curve and um but a very interesting journey
0: well i i hear that quote now in my head each time i sit down to meet with a new client because I could tell sometimes how overwhelming it is for them and they recognize the importance of the subject matter and like you mentioned in the book from the attorney's perspective it's second nature to us Mm -hmm. but realizing from your perspective that there's a lot that you're trying to digest at any one period of time Mm -hmm. so what I love about your book is that you have various quotes which I'm gonna spotlight some today these little nuggets as I call them where you really, in my opinion, do a great job of assimilating all of this really complex information and allowing the readers to see it from a perspective that it's easier for them to understand. And I was wondering, what inspired you to write the book? So um, thank you for that, because I did want to write the book as
1: if I were standing in in the average person's shoes and a lot of and I'm not a lawyer and so when lawyers try to explain something or I'm sorry but write something it's not always accessible (laughs) so um, I was trying to really make it simple and make it so I could understand it so the lay person could understand it But what inspired it is, as you know, I wrote a series of downsizing books, um, starting with Downsizing the Family Home, when I cleared out my parents' house, and then I wrote Downsizing the Blended Home, when my husband and I got married, and he had a fully loaded house, and I had a fully loaded house, and we were in our 50s and trying to make sense out of it all, and that was a mess, and there are are ways to go through that. And then a publisher, was familiar with my work and knew these topics were hitting home and he reached out to my agent and said hey do you think Marnie would like to do the ultimate downsize and I didn't really know what that meant but he right. said what to do with everything like you're you know you talk about how to downsize or blend a home but what about when you cross that finish line which I talk I sort of jokingly say everybody else is gonna die but me but in just in case we right. get hit by that meteor we want to be prepared so it was like how to make sure everything goes into the corner pocket when that day does come for you, whenever that day is, because we never know. Right. And so I'm like, you want me to write a book about dying? You know, what is that? And and he's like, no, no, no. It's like just the ultimate downsides, like that. what to do with everything. So the kids get what they are supposed to get and, and your causes that you care about get what they're supposed to get. Your partner's taken care of. And it doesn't just happen. So I had already been through enough of this legis- estate planning to know, you're right, it takes some, takes some doing. So I dove into it. He asked me to write it, and I said, OK. So here we go. How long did it take you to write the book? <laughs> well, yeah, I'm a journalist on deadline, So I, yes. I, am, I produce. You know, every week I write a column. So I had a lot of material already. And once we, I knew what my deadline was, I made it. So I guess nine months a year, probably, uh-huh. yeah.
0: And as you opened yourself up and really was personal in a lot of respects with regard to the book and how you went about writing it, one of the things that you've already touched on is the fact that you now have this blended family and you and your husband created these three buckets, right? There is yours, there's his, and then there's ours. Mm -hmm. And that you approached the estate planning process with that in mind, having those segregated buckets. Talk, if you would, about how you went about actually accomplishing that, and more importantly, how you having a prenuptial agreement enabled you to bring that to fruition. Sure,
1: so again, all this was foreign to me, but um, most families are blended or you know there's divorce most a lot of families forty percent have a child from outside the marriage that come in it's a there's a lot of mixing up there's not everyone i was raised in a nuclear intact family of four but that wasn't how it went going forward for me so my husband's situation was even a little more complicated when he married his late wife she had a five-year-old son and then the two of them had biological children together and doug became a stepfather to this this her son who also had a biological father in his life so he didn't adopt him because the biological father was still his father so it was complicated Mm -hmm. so when his wife died of cancer prematurely uh, the son the stepson kind of raised the question like well does that leave me out you're gonna get remarried and it's over for me And that was what sort of tripped everything. We're like, no, 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 I'm not here to mess that up and we want everyone protected. So that caused Doug to really do some thinking ahead. And so he was able to corral the assets, the joint assets that they had, their house and their investments and some of their savings and and partition that off for his children to enjoy when that day comes. Meanwhile, I had a small trust from my family when my parents died, that got established and I wanted that to go to my children. So we both carved that out and created family trusts that were in not commingled. And then we are growing our assets going forward. We have a home and we have investments. And our retirements were going to go to each other because that's just protecting us for the long term. So we thought it all through and um, it just made a lot of sense and everyone feels protected and and knows they're going to get taken care of. And, you know, whoever dies first, the other one's not going to raid the account. So, you know, we need to put these bright lines down and make sure that everyone feels safe, protected. And they don't think that I'm predatory. I don't get feel that they're gonna accuse me of anything or my kids would accuse my husband of anything. So it just, going forward, whatever happens, it's going to be
0: clear. And it made sense for you and your family. Like you said, every family is unique. Mm-hmm. And with the separate trust that you've each created for your children, those assets will go to them directly when you pass away. They don't have to mm-hmm. wait for your spouse to pass away before they inherit those funds, That's right? That's right.
1: Immediately upon the passing of, this, of the parent, they will those funds will divest. Okay, mm-hmm.
0: and you all felt like you had enough of your own assets, joint assets, that spouse would be properly provided for without having access to those other assets, right?
1: That's right. Exactly. Okay. And the way the joint assets work is uh, we're dividing it 22-22-22-22-12. So all the kids are factored in. And the step sign is the ha- half of okay the other ones. So I wasn't doing the math, but I'm like, okay, <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> but that was um, how we had to look at that. And, um, and just the trust is also, set, his trust is set up that way. So it's divided a little bit more for the biological children and half as much for the stepson because he has a dad, is an only child that he will inherit from him.
0: Okay. So. And then what allowed you to do that sort of planning was the fact that you had this prenup in place or that you agreed to enter it into the prenup because I know we've talked about prenups before on this podcast, but it's not just what happens in the event of divorce. It also addresses what happens in the event of death. Right. Right.
1: Right. And I thought, you know, in my mind, prenup was like, what do you think we're going to get divorced? But of course, divorce happens. I had been divorced. And, you know, we, but it just felt kind of like, oh, we don't trust me. But it wasn't that at all. It just makes so much sense in the long term and the planning process. And everybody could take a
0: deep breath and not get concerned. It allowed you to both carry out your wishes. Because like I've talked about before, In the absence of having a prenup where you waive those rights to each other's estate, now all of those assets come into the calculation. It's something called an elective share. And so surviving spouse gets a third of all of it. You wouldn't be able Mm -hmm. to just say this goes over to the kids and spouse doesn't have any part of those assets. So it gave you the freedom to do the planning that you all determined was best for you and your family.
1: Right, and to, to put another layer of complication on it, if we borrow from the trusts, like uh, if I borrow from to buy a car for myself, and we're gonna pay that back with our personal means, but we will put a lien against our principal house. So with that sells, that gets our trusts get paid back. So regardless, those trusts are sacrosanct. They will have a fixed amount in them. That's great. Even when we borrow against them, we'll take a lien against the personal to pay off the trust and make sure those are whole and intact when the kids are ready to get them.
0: So I could see how initially, probably having to make those decisions and going through the process of the prenup, like you said, each of you having your own lawyer, (laughs) It's a little unsettling. Yes. But then coming out on the other side of it, realizing, okay, now we've got these protections in place. My children are protected, his children are protected, and now hopefully we won't have any ill will among the family members and it's just it's all out there. It's it's all intact.
1: Yeah. And quite honestly, when I sat with my personal attorney to to go over this, I really, I looked at the, I didn't know what it said. I read the prenup agreement, I'm like, I have no idea. But I, it really is a leap of faith. I had to trust her. I had to trust my husband. I'm like, you know, and now it's, you know, we're well into the marriage, but I can feel comfortable. This is absolutely done right. And writing the book really helped me verify, you know, it's like, some famous president said trust but verify yes (laughs) you know help me I trusted but then I verified absolutely it's it's good to do
0: and one thing too that struck me about the book is when you talked about how when you were in your mid-20s your mom had a conversation with you about the (laughs) plans that your father and your mother had put into place for when they passed away and how that really stayed with you long term And to this day, you see the value in that. Probably more so now that you're older than you were when she first talked to you about it, right? It was the strangest conversation. I'm like, what are you talking about? She takes me back to the bedroom that used
1: to be my bedroom, but I'd moved out of it. And in the middle drawer of the dresser was this blue packet with their trust. It even had their burial, their graves that they had purchased. And I'm like, what the heck? What are you guys doing? You're not going <laughs> to die. You know, what is this? They're vital, healthy people. Well, someday. And, oh, and I'd already told my older brother about it. So I was like kept out of this loop. So finally, anyway, it was the strangest conversation. And then they showed me this, you know, something their lawyer had put together. I'm like, you've seen a lawyer already? Like you didn't even ask my permission. <laughs> like they need my permission to see a lawyer. Anyway, um, it was really helpful because it taught me this is how you do death. and I um, thought it was very awkward and strange at the time but of course they're now deceased and they lived into their 90s God bless them but everything fell into place my brother was the executor um, being the older brother and he took care of the finances and he was all super well laid out and their burials plots were picked you know it, it was grief grievous for us to have to say goodbye to them of course but They left it so nicely, except for their house, which was a hot mess that I was in charge of clearing out, which we brought us to downsizing the family home and this stuffed house and and what to do with all the stuff. But that's another subject.
0: Yeah, I loved your quote. You said, death is something you plan for like you plan for college or buying a house or starting a family or retirement.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a phase of life. So,
0: Yes, absolutely, Mm -hmm. and I like the way you dispel some of the notions about the estate planning process. You say wills, you know, people will say wills are for rich people, I have plenty of time, I don't have enough assets to leave anyone, it's too expensive, I don't want to think about this now, I don't know where to begin, and you were there. You were the average person Mm -hmm. before you started writing this book. I used all of those excuses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> none of them is correct. <laughs> and and that's that's it. You you through this book, I think you really spotlight for folks the fact that none of that is right. Um, there's a reason, and it's important for everyone to do advanced planning. And the benefits far outweigh all of those notions that can be very easily dispelled. As you go through that process
1: yeah I think I mean really everyone should have a will and it's even even if you have next to nothing because if you don't take care of your estate the state will yes and that isn't a way that you want your disposition your belongings to be made it's just not going to end well
0: and as you say the state statutes right so when someone dies without a will it's an intestate situation so these Mm -hmm. intestacy statutes as you noted in your book are cookie cutter approaches Mm -hmm. right they're just so-called typical situations which to your point describes almost no one right so far better for someone to have a will, or a trust, or both, more importantly, um, in place so that they can outline exactly what they want to do, because something else that you said that really struck me is regardless of how you want the chips to fall when you're gone, one thing is for sure they won't go where you want them to unless you plan. Exactly. One of the things that I kept bringing to mind was
1: a blank canvas that you get to paint, and if, if we, We're all gonna be dead a lot longer than we're alive. Right. So, you should leave a mark on the world that is a good one, that leaves it a better place. And that certainly is, is you know, if you raise children or do good work, it, it's going to weave its way into the world, but if you have assets and you can define where you want them to go to benefit whatever cause, if it's research or the arts or your, your um, college or your community, the things that have meant something to you that you care about, that you, you work, if your church or whatever you live for today, you can make a difference into perpetuity with those institutions if you plan. Otherwise, it's not gonna happen. So I'm just really, you get to paint your own canvas and it's such an honor to live your life with thinking it forward and and making and knowing that you're going to leave a a legacy and you're going to leave a mark and you have been intentional about it because otherwise you get snuffed out it's just not going to happen
0: and as you indicate too how you leave the planet not just what you leave is your legacy Mm -hmm. and i i've really thought it was interesting because you said be thoughtful about it and give yourself that opportunity to be thoughtful about it through the planning process and you devote a good portion of the book to philanthropic planning Mm -hmm. and and talk about what options you have through charitable giving, whether it's doing it through wills or trusts or designating a charity as a beneficiary. You talk about community foundations, all those things. I had Nicole Donaldson from the Central Florida Foundation on last year. Mm for one of my podcasts. So I think in in talking about particular these couples that you interviewed and how they accomplished their charitable giving goals, it's all intended to actually benefit, as you said, those organizations that they're passionate about, that they wanna continue to support well beyond the time that they leave this planet.
1: Yeah, my, one of my favorite stories, I have many favorite stories in the book, but it, I think it's the couples, the Fultzes mm-hmm. that you mentioned. And these were high school sweethearts. They never had children. Uh, and after they, they were both, they both t- became high school teachers. And they had very little money, but when they were newly really married, they traveled to Europe and they just fell over for the museums and all the art. And, and they just would spend their last cent on going into a museum and appreciating the art. And they live in Albuquerque. And when they settled back in the States, they got very involved with their museum. And they would go every weekend and just loved it, every bit of it. And they decided, you know, their nieces and nephews didn't need the money and they didn't really want to leave them in many. And so they wanted to give 100% of everything they owned to their museum. And they found out that, and you have to read the fine print, but you can't just say to the museum because the, mu- the city runs the museum the city would get that asset and do whatever they want you know get it get more p- police cars or something but if you you have to leave it to the museum foundation which isn't common knowledge so they had the museum director to kind of reorient them and then they got an executor who is um, going to liquidate every single thing in their house down to the, the from the cars to the spatulas everything is going to liquidate and go to the museum and if the house will have a huge art collection and the museum will come in and pick what they want and uh, if there's anything that they want they're not going to be offended if there's nothing that's museum worthy that's fine uh, if they if another museum wants it great otherwise that gets liquidated and everything goes to the museum and now they go and they have lunch and they at the museum and they have a glass of wine and they look around they're like everything we own is going to help this place someday and they just it's so uplifting for them i love that story
0: yes i loved it too and i was so glad that you spotlighted the fact that it's so important to have the conversation with the charitable (laughs) institution or the art museum because We've had that situation come up before where a client will come to me and say, oh, name this organization. Well, we have to go to the organization and verify what's the proper legal name. Even with a lot of colleges and universities, you don't want to name the college. The college or university has a foundation, mm-hmm. and that allows for your estate to get a tax deduction if it goes to the foundation because that has the 501 c three status. And then, in some situations, clients want to leave their tangible items or their home to a charitable organization, but they don't want that type of asset. I've had
1: people. I've heard people leave their yachts, yes. and they're like, "We don't want a yacht. Right. <laughs> we don't know what to do with the yacht. We, exactly. you know, so we don't know they, how to
0: sell a yacht. No, we don't how want to, maintain to get involved. it,
1: Maintain the boat slip or whatever it is. So, uh, you can't do that. Or a house. Or and and the people write it in their will and and don't ask and then people are like oh shoot now what do we do with all this stuff so um, yeah ask and I really mostly liquidate you have to arrange the most people want most organizations and family members frankly want the cash so um, better to arrange for if you have some you know fantastic collection of Pez dispensers they probably just want to know who's gonna buy it so they can get the money (laughs) and they don't really want the, the collection
0: Yes, and that is so true because I think more and more children today are not interested in their items that their parents have, the tangible items. Mm-hmm. Um, the sentimental value, they don't have that connection to a lot of things, some things maybe so, in mm-hmm. jewelry probably more so than others, but mm-hmm. the china and all the other sets and everything else, they just normally come in and they get an auction company or an estate sale company to just deal with all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And you talk about that fact uh, that really, and that's I think in large part what your downsizing books Mm -hmm. address too, right? Just simplify and try to declutter while you're here and
1: the downsizing discussion is is really nobody gets through life without it, I don't think. I think everyone has to sort through somebody's house. And if you've beloved parents, it's incredibly painful and you want to save everything because you think you're saving them and it's just not the case we all know that it's just stuff but there are also there are connective devices like if you remember i have my mother's pearls and they link me to her um my dad wasn't a cigar smoker per se but he had a cigar box and i have that on my desk as a pencil holder so i can bounce off my parents in small meaningful ways but i didn't take everything from their home in California and put it in the overhead bin to bring to Florida um, because it just doesn't make sense. So when everything is important, nothing is important, you over Um, overdo it. And if you have a few, few items that you really can touch on and that connect you to your loved one, that's really meaningful. But when you have a bunch of stuff, it's just clutter. So you have to really be ruthless and selective. And I say, keep the pearls and not the piano. (laughs) Take the small things. Um, And, and and yeah, and, and ask the kids what they want. Uh, You think they're oh, they're going to want that dining room table and that sideboard. They just don't know anything right now. And uh, they'll come around eventually. No, if they say they don't want it, they don't want it. Sell it. (laughs) They want the cash. And if they make a mistake in this, I darn it, I wish I'd gotten that sideboard from mom when she offered it to me. Isn't your job as a parent to have your children learn from their mistakes? Yes. So they made a mistake and then learn from it and you're moving on. You've done your job.
0: I have had some clients where they've said to the kids, tell me what you want. And then they put little stickers mm-hmm. on the bottom of those items. Yeah. And otherwise, we're just going to get rid of it. We're going right. to dispose of it. And
1: and don't let the stickers stand in place of the will. Correct. But yeah, because there will be some sw- sticker switching if you're not careful. But if you can disvest of those things beforehand, when you say you move into a, a, a downsized community and you you want to get rid of some of your bigger pieces, great. You know, let, let the kids have at it but if it's after the fact it could get kind of dicey so you might want to write specific bequests into your will.
0: Yes and the good thing here in Florida too we've got the separate writing form which is designed for folks to designate with specificity Mm. items of tangible personal property and who they want to have ultimately receive them and that can be changed as much over time Mm. you don't have to get a lawyer involved so if you make changes frequently which a lot of people do you're not having to amend your will. You can do it through this separate writing document. great. So it builds in some flexibility. One thing that you were told by one of the experts, which I thought was interesting, is that if you collect paintings from a specific artist or baseball cards or stamps or dolls, you're going to increase your odds of finding the right buyer and getting the best price if you sell them individually instead of as a collection.
1: It's counterintuitive, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. So. The way collections work, collectors are usually looking for one or two special pieces. They're really not looking to buy an entire collection, because a collector, a true collector, the joy is in making their own collection. And they don't want to just inherit somebody else's, because that may have a duplicate, or they're really just looking for, they want to make their own special collection. So you're going to do a lot better in a one-off situation and those so that's just how that world works you might find a buyer for it all but unlikely if they're truly collectors looking for that single piece so that's um something to keep in mind
0: very interesting. but I also
1: think it's interesting if you are you know if you're if you have a parent or you personally collect something that only you find fascinating like um, magnifying glasses from ancient world um find out who is the buyer for that like who collects those or who's the auction house that handles that because there's very specific kinds of auctioners who will look for like like a state um estate jewelry is one or fine paintings is another or uh, old cars you will find a unique person who's in charge knows those collections really well and will help rehome them in the best price so if you can kind of say, when I die, we could talk about the tractor collection, yes. the John Deere, right? My John Deere tractor, you want to call this guy because he knows how to sell them. right? And that gives your family a big leg up and may increase the value of your estate.
0: And I think that helps spotlight something else that you talk about in the book, the importance of communicating with your family members mm. about what your plans are and that way they're not surprised after you leave this earth and hopefully that will help mitigate discord among the family after the fact it's always something that my clients struggle with i have Mm -hmm. some that very clearly say i'm going to go ahead and tell them in advance exactly what the documents say i have others that say i don't really want to broach it with them after I'm gone they can find out at that point point. Um, and then of course these are living breathing documents right so you can always change your mind as long as you're of sound mind and mm-hmm. capable then you can make changes and so I think sometimes clients are hesitant to tell their children for instance this is how I'm leaving things and then years from now they change it and then there's certain expectations if they don't communicate the changes as well so uh, you talk about that it's it's a tough decision that folks have to make about how much to communicate and when to do that what
1: i heard over and over as i'm sure you would say is have the conversation yes just have the conversation because there's so much fighting that happens after the fact and fortunately i had a amical my brother and i were in perfect agreement and when my husband was um divesting his when his mother died and he was working on her her will and separating her to belongings it was helpful that she had expressed to him and his sister what they wanted and there wasn't any fighting but that is not usually the case especially if there's a lot at stake there's going to be arguments and misunderstandings oh but she told me this and she told me that and he said promise this and I think you need to clear the air and make sure everyone's on the same page, because not everyone wants to divest their will in the same way. Some people just say, three kids, 33, 33, 33, you know, just divvy it up. Somebody also say, well, you know, Joe's a neurosurgeon, and and Jill is a stay-at-home mom with a a disabled child, so she needs more than he. And so we're going to make it a little bit uneven, and that needs to be expressed not post-mortem it should be expressed in in the real time and let the questions come and the understandings get aired I think it will make a world of difference yes
0: and give them an opportunity to digest it all and to have really an opportunity to discuss with you exactly what your thought process was Mm -hmm. when you were making those decisions Mm -hmm. for if there's going to be disparity in particular Mm -hmm. among the kids Mm because people always have a rational basis for doing what they do in their estate planning documents, and sometimes it's just hard for family members to understand exactly what they that see was. it through
1: their lens, and yes. they sort of think they should get. Here's why I should get more.
0: Exactly. So. Yeah, I love your quote when you say, "Whenever you, whenever you plan, you come up with, don't take it to your grave before others learn about it. Survivors don't like to find out when it's a done deal, and they can't discuss it." Reviewing your plans with your family while you're alive heads off a lot of ill, pardon the pun, will. There you go. That was great. I really loved (laughs) that. you. Um, You also talk about titles, titling of assets, and how that trumps wills and trusts people always say to me oh so if I put this in my will and I said well you do realize that the will is what goes through probate and you've got this trust that you created so why don't we fund the trust that you paid hard money for right? Um, And then by the way if all of your assets are joint none of that's going into the trust because it's all just going to go to surviving spouse. They don't realize how critical the titling conversation is. So I was really glad to see that you devoted a whole chapter to that.
1: Well, we swerved into that, Vanessa. My husband, even as a lawyer, didn't know that. And we found out because we jointly bought a condo for my daughter who was getting in graduate school at, at Vanderbilt. And we wanted her to have housing, but when she moved on, we would sell the asset and divide it up. And we, we had both of our trust buy it you know, so it was 50-50, and yet we didn't title it in the name of our trust. And our attorney was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, you need to make sure the title is with, is the trust is is on the title. Yeah. So if something should happen, that it was a protection because even if we had it in the will, it would have gone sideways. So we learned along the way, so get good counsel because even my attorney husband didn't know that nuance. And um, as you experts do, the estate and will attorneys all know that. And um, you'll be well guided to make sure all the titles are in the right in the right name.
0: Because like you say, how you title an asset has everything to do with whether it lands in the corner pocket <laughs> you'd aimed for or ricochets <laughs> and lands in a side pocket, which wasn't at all what you had planned for. Exactly. Yeah. So There's a lot of, I mean, you really do need,
1: you do need professionals all along the way. I'm a big fan of
0: yours. Well, thank you. Um, One thing that I thought was interesting that I had not heard of before is the concept of the living probate. Now, you mentioned in your book that only Alaska, Arkansas, North Mm. Dakota, and Ohio have this, but this allows a person who's established a will to ask the court to determine while they're alive whether that will is valid before they die in an effort to reduce the chances of a post-death challenge of the validity of the document. I had never heard of that before, and I thought, wow. I mean, certainly in the larger states, that just would be untenable for our court system because, again, these are living, breathing documents. Mm -hmm. They could change over Mm -hmm. time, and so you're asking the court to make a decision about a document now that may not in fact be effective later because you may have revoked it or amended it or whatever, but I thought that was a very interesting concept.
1: Well, thank you. I One of the hardest parts of writing this book, as you'll appreciate, is that every state has these crazy yes. differences and you need to be uh, seek a lawyer in the state in which you are living and maybe dying and where that takes effect. So there are these outliers, but there is the question of, is, can the will be contested? And if there is question about whether you wrote it in, um, you were in the right frame of mind, or you were under duress, or medicated um, somebody can swoop in and say oh that he didn't mean it you know that wasn't what he really wanted and contest it so having if you think that could happen and you happen to live in one of those states that lets you take it to the court and say please validate this will so if there's no chance that somebody will contest it because i really do want to leave it all to my french poodle then they can bless it and there's nobody that can do anything about it
0: yeah that's amazing because really nobody wants to see the assets of the estate or the trust be spent on attorney's fees and court costs and protracted litigation. That's not what anybody intended. As we saw in the one Quinn case, which we had, that was sad. Yes, absolutely. But you also talk about the fact that really money is only part of our legacy, and the other is to develop good people. And (laughs) so you've got other comments in here too, like the lighter your living footprint, the smaller your legacy burden. Those are just really, I think, practical considerations for people to realize this is an emotional process. Mm -hmm. And I think in part that's why a lot of people avoid it for as long as they do. There's an awful lot to consider, both in terms of family dynamics, like you and your husband went through, right? And how that impacts the planning and what you own and how you're gonna title it and how you ultimately want it to go, whether it's family, friends, or charities so it can be overwhelming admittedly
1: i think the difference of this book what to do with everything you own is that it doesn't just look at where your money goes because that actually is the easy part it's the house and the cars and the boats and the dishes and the furniture and all the stuff that fills a house and a home and the jewelry all the material wealth and it's probably not wealth, because most people think their stuff's worth a lot more than it is, but that's something else. <laughs> but I like to picture, one of the, my favorite images that I kind of came up with as I was doing this is, is a picture a magic funnel as you are crossing that finish line and everything you own dumps into that funnel and it starts off with material stuff and it turns into money It comes to everything gets sold. There's a price you can get for everything and it comes out as meaning.
0: You're distilling it down.
1: Yep. You convert it, all this all the stuff and the the toys the Cub got uniforms the yearbooks all the stuff that fills up a house and in the the salad tongs you name it throw it in and and let it come out as in there are liquidators you can turn this into money and then make it into meaning like this is going to go to Charlotte's education this is going to go to you know help you know fund fund college for kids or this is going to go to my church or this is going to go to help animals or research whatever it is but it's not going to happen the stuff can really be converted into meaningful a meaningful difference if you just get it together and make a plan for it and i think you should try to divest as you go along the way like you know if you have an old piece of jewelry that nobody's going to want but it has some value get the melt i did that with my old wedding ring you know my girls weren't Mm -hmm. gonna want it so i took it I I got the diamond out I got the gold out I turned it into money I put it in their trust it will convey to both of them evenly as a, as material wealth and as it should yes but it didn't we didn't just happen yeah. you better think about it
0: it was a process and mm-hmm. that's what you, when you mentioned earlier about cleaning out your parents home they lived in that house you said for almost 50, 50 years mm-hmm. And I laughed because you said the effort required a bulldozer, smelling salts, an iron stomach, a therapy dog, and the stamina of a triathlete.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) But you did it. Oh, It's so hard. It's super, super hard. And you can, I mean, my parents were just savers. And, you know, my mom had every Christmas card she ever received. It was so much. And um, it's a lot to leave to your kids. I have a friend who uses this expression. It's a little macabre, but I I think about it now. Is she says, "I want to leave my drawers in dying order," or "I'm getting my drawers in dying order." So when you open a drawer, you think, "If I died after tomorrow, would I be embarrassed by this drawer?" Yes, I better fix it.
0: (laughs) It's something to kind of keep you going along the way. (laughs) Well, that's great. You've got another book coming out soon, right? Tell us about that.
1: It's called Right Size Today to Create Your Best Life Tomorrow. and it's a little bit more upbeat maybe than this other one but um, it's really about helping couples, families, anyone in in the last third of their life to be super intentional about living where and how they want to live. Too many people because they save everything are entrapped in a home that is no longer serving them. They live in a big house where they raised the kids because they were near the schools or the bus stop or their work, and now they're either retired or working remotely, the kids are off, and they just have this huge house with all the Cub Scout uniforms and stuff upstairs, and they, they um, are not living their best life because they're paying paying too much because of the for in real estate and property taxes but they and don't
0: really need a
1: pool that nobody swims in or whatever and and they can just try to get them to envision so it has a bunch of questions to kind of help you soul search about where would i live if i were living my best life and how do i get there and how can i get rid of some of this overhead that's holding me back and one-third of these people move up they get a bigger place so it's not about living smaller always it might be but it's about living better And it's certainly about living with less stuff, but you might have a bigger house. Maybe you want the grandkids to be able to come and go more often, whatever. But think about it and be intentional. I think if that's the theme of all my stuff is my my work is get rid of the stuff you don't need. Find a rehome, find a good place, and live a great life for the moment. I'm not about living like a monk. I I love my stuff, but I do (laughs) not want to be encumbered by the past because it keeps me from moving into the future.
0: That's great. And I do want to share one more quote because I thought it was fantastic that you had in your book. Imagine your legacy as a light shining long after you're gone. When designing your legacy, consider the impact the choices you make today could have on others and on the world for generations. Mm That was fantastic. Did I, did I write that? You did <laughs> write that. You did write that. I can't thank you enough for joining me thank today. You. It's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thank you. And again, it is what to do with everything you own to leave the legacy you want. Thank you so much, Marnie. Thank you. you.